Years ago, I had sat under a professor that had lectured on the thesis of finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, he had said that within every single verse of Scripture, from the time of Moses all the way through the prophets, that Jesus could be found in every little bit of verse. He demonstrated that point by asking those at the lectureship just to name out any verse, and then he would point that verse back to Jesus or some kind of teaching that Jesus had, had brought to us. So someone in the crowd had yelled out Proverbs 21, verse 19. Now, you're probably not familiar with that proverb, but this wise guy was. That proverb says, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now, of course, that got a roar from the crowd that was there. And the professor, after it settled down, just went in and said, you know, that particular proverb deals with dissension between husband and wife. He says, actually, that's a proverb of warning. And he says, that proverb is really from a wise man that says, you know what? If you're not going to love your wife, it would be best that you just go live in the desert. And then he began to do some background on that proverb. And he said, it's that desert where there is no life and it's fruitless. And all because you just didn't show your wife any love, she became quarrelsome and nagging is the warning. So why don't you go back to her, quit living in the desert, and produce within that relationship something healthy and strong. He said, just like Jesus Christ has done for the church, and just like Jesus Christ has taught all men in a Christian relationship to do for their spouse. Well, the crowd was quiet after that. But what he was getting at was the simplicity that all verses of Scripture point to Jesus. Because isn't this the nature of God and Jesus There's dissension in the relationship. There's a problem within the relationship. And some of us feel like it's better just to go live in the desert and have a fruitless life. But Christ Jesus showed up as part of God's redemptive plan and has come back in so that He can bring the relationship between us and God back together and our relationship can be fruitful and our lives can be a blessing and they can be enjoyable. We look at the Bible around here like this, that it's God's written history of how He has restored the relationship with people like us. So you can look through Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, and you can see how God has worked through history to to redeem and to restore people like you and people like me. And of all the stories that point to, to, to Jesus... And what he's about to do in the Old Testament, probably no better story is encapsulated than the story we find in Numbers chapter 21. Before we get into Numbers 21, I want to remind you of what Jesus says about Numbers 21 in the book of John, the Gospel, where Jesus has a meeting at night with a man by Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus refers to the story that we're going to look at today by saying these words. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. It's interesting to me that Jesus goes back 1,500 years before John chapter 3 to explain what God is going to do through history to restore people like you and me. And Jesus says, you go ahead and you take a look at something that happened thousands of years ago if you want to see Why I'm here, Jesus says. So let's look at Numbers 21. Let's take a look at what Jesus is referring to. Open up your Bibles with me, Numbers chapter 21. And while you're opening there, let me give you some background on 
what is about ready to take place within this scripture. The nation of Israel had just been in slavery by the Egyptians for about 400 years. And God is using a unique, uniquely placed leader by the name of Moses to bring freedom to his people. Now you'd think after 400 years of being enslaved and being oppressed that the people would be ecstatic about being released to live how they want to live and to find their own home. But they weren't. They began to grumble. And immediately after they crossed the sea and were going over to Mount Sinai, the people began to grumble and rebel against God. They began to grumble against Moses and his leadership. And so God had said, you know what? I've had it with you complainers. You're going to march around in the wilderness for 40 years That was God's way of saying, I can't use this generation. This generation has told me by their complaints that they're unwilling to be used. And so I'm going to let them march around the wilderness until they all die off. That may have you rethink about your complaining in the church sometimes. It's okay to complain when it's constructive, but maybe if it's continual and a part of your nature, maybe God might just say to you like he said the Israelites of that generation, you know what, you're proven to me by your talk, I can't use you. Because you don't seem to want to be used. So God had a way of telling that generation, well, you're going to walk in the desert until you die. But God did some amazing things in that desert. He was able to provide for them and to sustain them while in that desert for 40 years. There were some miraculous events that took place within that desert that we shouldn't overlook. One of the great miraculous events is one that is oftentimes overlooked. And that is the fact that their clothing and their shoes never wore out. They just never became uh, wore out with holes or their shoes never began to fall apart from their walking. God had held those things together to say, I'm going to provide for you. You don't need these things. I'm more important than these. They were also guided by a cloud by day and the Bible says a pillar of fire by night. They had no idea where their destination was, but they certainly knew where they were going because God had made it aware to them through cloud and fire, that he was leading them. God gave them their daily meal, and this is the one that's probably most talked about. There was quail, which would just fall out of the sky by the millions and would be gathered up by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Israelites who were wandering in the desert. Quail would just land from the heavens right before their feet. All they had to do was prepare it for a meal. There was something called manna, which came from the heavens, and they could grind that manna up, and they could turn it into cakes, and they could turn it into bread. And God was miraculously feeding his people six out of seven days that they could gather that food. All they needed was provided by God in a miraculous way all they had to do was follow after the lord so here we are in numbers 21 we're in the 40th year of the wandering they've made it this far 40 years are almost up but guess what there's still some complainers left and they've got one last complaint in their aged old bodies as they're dying off they say to moses which is a direct complaint to god in numbers 21 verse 4 It says they've traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go along to Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. And they spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, now here's their complaint. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Now here's the sin. The sin is found in Numbers 21 verse 4. They complained and they grumbled against God's appointed leadership. But the sin was greater than that. 
They complained and grumbled against God's daily provision for them. Was there food? Yeah, there was food. It might have been the same food that they've been eating for the last 39 years, but there was, there was food. They complained and grumbled against what God had provided for them. And friends, here's what they were really rejecting. They were rejecting the bread, and they make an announcement about it. We're tired of this, with this bread. And in the rejection of the bread, ultimately, they are rejecting God. Guys, there's so much to this story that we don't totally understand. So we don't really understand the severity of the sin that is taking place before us. But Jesus announces what exactly is going on in Numbers 21 when he refers to this in John chapter 6. Turn over with me to John chapter 6 because it's there where Jesus has just fed thousands of men and thousands of women and thousands of children with a miraculous dealing of dividing loaves and fishes and he's handed them out to everyone that's there and people have taken in the food and they're amazed at this walking cafeteria named jesus and there's thousands of people that are circled around ready for the next big miracle and they can't find jesus anywhere and finally they get a hold of him again on the other side of the sea and in verse 30 of john chapter 6 they ask him well hey what sign then will you give that we may see it and so that we will believe you. Friends, they had just been fed miraculously from a little boy's lunch. An abundance of food, so much so that they couldn't eat it all. And now they're looking for another miracle so that they might believe even further in Jesus. Verse 31 says, Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, also give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, what was the people in Jesus' day wanting? They were wanting food, just like the people in Moses' day were wanting. Now, there was a common thought amongst the Jews. The common thought was this, from the days of Moses to the time of Jesus, that when the Messiah comes, the one to redeem Jerusalem and Israel, when he comes, he's going to bring with him the institution of daily provisions of manna from heaven and quell from heaven, that they wouldn't have to worry anymore about their daily provisions bread the messiah would bring that with them and so because of this tradition of the rabbis they believed since jesus was there that jesus was always going to provide for them every day they were going to have a meal set before them provisions were given in the wilderness but jesus didn't continue to provide food in the time when he lived and when jesus said that there was bread he wasn't saying there was bread that should be craved physically he's saying there should be bread that is craved spiritually you see the people were only wanting food for their bellies and jesus saying no i'm going to give you food for your soul so skip on down to verse 58 of john chapter 6 and here's what jesus says he says this is the bread that came down from heaven your ancestors ate manna and they died you get it they ate things from heaven they ate food that would physically make them healthy but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever and jesus is referring to himself he's referring to himself as the bread of life now the majority of the people there they said i'm out of here 
I want food and all Jesus is offering is eternal life. That's not going to help me now. I want something that's going to help me now and not going to help me later. And that manna that was associated with the Messiah, they had turned it into a sin. What they were rejecting was the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And in Numbers 21, the bread that they were actually rejecting was the bread of God, the provisions that God was bringing to their life to sustain them so they could live, which is a reference to Jesus Christ. Isn't that important? That when they reject the bread in Numbers 21, they're ultimately rejecting Jesus. They're ultimately rejecting God, who is the bread of life, the one that can satisfy the soul. What a serious sin that's before the people. Now, can you imagine the seriousness of sin that we have when we reject the bread of life? Jesus Christ? I mean, for goodness sakes, those people in Numbers 21, they had no idea really who Jesus was. They didn't know what he was going to come to do. They wanted a deliverer, but they didn't know who he was. And now here we stand, and we know who the deliverer is. We know where salvation is found. And we look to Jesus, and Jesus says, I offer eternal life. And yet, there are so many in this room who have rejected that. You said, God, I just want my daily provisions. I don't want eternal life. What a serious sin to reject the bread of life. Friends, we've been led to believe a lie that's been preached from the pulpits, especially in the United States. And that is, every sin is the same. A sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. But that's not true. Every sin is not the same. You don't have to think too far into this to realize it, that a murderer is going to be treated a lot differently than a child who steals candy from the supermarket. The consequences of sin are completely different. But the result is all the same. And that's where we get confused. While the consequences are different, the result's all the same. And the result is it removes us from a right standing with God. That's why we say around here, one sin or a million sins. We're all in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 puts it like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's God judging you and judging me and judging the world and saying every single one of us is guilty of sinning. And we've all felt the consequences of this sin. And we're pointed back to a story 3,500 years ago to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and we see how the people rejected God's provisions, and we say, wow, I can't believe they rejected something that was such a blessing from God. And here we stand, and some of you today have rejected Jesus, who you've read about, who you've been told about, who you've been preached to about, who has provided for you every single day, has given breath in your lungs, and yet we still stand in rejection of Jesus. We still haven't taken the grace that he's afforded us for eternal life. We haven't eaten from the bread of life. And there was a consequence to their rejection of God's daily provisions that we find in Numbers 21, verse 6. Here's the consequence. Look at with, with me. Go back to Numbers 21 and look at verse 6 with me. says, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. So if there was sin, then there became consequence. And this is the pattern. When there's sin, there becomes consequence. There was consequence for their sin, and the consequence was venomous snakes. Now, some translations have translated that to fiery snakes, which is really an interpretation of what the snake bite was like, that it would bite you, and then the poison would get into you, and it would burn, and so the people would then suffer. It'd be like fire shooting through their body. And that means that the people didn't immediately die once they were bit. 
That means the people, once they were bit, suffered in their consequence, and then they ultimately died. Those, those snakes, what those snakes did to Israel, you know sin does to the world. What a picture of how sin infects our life. When we sin, we don't immediately die. As a matter of fact, we suffer in our sin. We feel the consequences of our lie. We feel the consequences of our divorce. We feel the consequences of our abuse that we've heaped upon somebody else. We don't ultimately die. No, we, we suffer in our sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us this. We will eventually die. It says just as man is destined to die, and then we're all going to face judgment. So there's two parts here. We're all going to die because of sin, and then we're going to have judgment placed on our life. That's a guarantee. Die and then judgment. One day we're going to lose this body, but did you know that we're going to be judged by what we've done in this body? And that judgment that was pronounced upon the Israelites of that day in the desert was handed down by God because they had rejected God's provisions. They had rejected what God had given them to stay alive physically. And so their judgment was a physical judgment. Does that make sense? God, I don't want this physical food. And God says, you don't want this physical food? You're going to physically die. That's your judgment. Now, how much more severe would that judgment be if we reject God's bread of life, Jesus Christ? Spiritually. God, I don't want what you're offering to me spiritually, this bread of life. And God says, you don't want what's being offered to you spiritually? Well, you're going to die. Not a physical death just, but also a spiritual death as well. The removal from God's love. And God calls that place hell. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says it like this. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for we, what he has done in the body. Now notice what it says, whether good or bad. We're all going to stand before Christ. We're all going to be standing as a judgment of what we've done in the body, both good and bad. And we're going to give account for it. And the people in the desert that day, they were inflicted with pain. They were inflicted with death. And it, you know, it, it, they finally came to their senses. So they came to Moses. Look with me in Numbers 21, verse 7. They came to Moses, and here's what they say. They said, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. And so the people began to confess to God that they were wrong that they have rejected God's daily provisions, that they rejected what God had brought to them for life. And friends, the Bible recalls that repentance. You see, there was sin. There was a consequence for their sin. Then they came to their senses. They were sorry. They wanted to come back to God. And they repented. It's important to point out that if you want to be delivered from your sin, you first have to recognize the severity of your sin. You know, my boys fight and argue nearly every single day. I think they enjoy it because it happens so often in our house. I mean, one of the rules in our home is to say sorry for the behavior against one another, the bad behavior. And so typically, you know how it works with kids. You say, well, you need to tell your brother sorry. And so they mumble out something like, oh, I'm sorry. 
And you say, no, say it like you mean it. Say it louder. I'm sorry. And, you know, they never really mean it. It's never authentic in the way they say, I'm sorry. And you can't force your children to be authentic in their sorry. You can only live out the example of genuine repentance. Now, the Israelites, when they realized what they'd done, they were authentically sorry. They meant it when they came to Moses and said, our sin is causing all sorts of people to die. The loved ones whom we've known for all these years, they're getting bit by these snakes and we were the ones that grumbled. They didn't grumble and I guess there's consequence to our sins. And so they come to Moses and say, would you tell God to make this right? We've caused too much heart and hurt for our community. You know, before anyone can be saved, there's got to be the genuine approach to God that says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the consequences that I've brought onto other people because of my sin. I'm not sorry because I'm getting bit by snakes and been captured by sin. I'm sorry because of what my sin has done to others. You know, before you think that God did something unjustifiable in Romans 21, or in Numbers 21, think again. Those people in that day condemned themselves. They rejected God, and God said, well, here's the judgment that comes upon you for rejecting me. And it became a great picture to his children of what it's like when you reject God. Things go bad. There's suffering, and there's death. You know, they got sorry real quick when loved ones started dying. They got sorry real quick when they personally got bit by the snake and recognized that their death was imminent. You know, it seems to me that suffering and pain and hurt are some of the very things that draw us closest to God. Have you realized that in your life? Sorrow, pain are some of the things that bring us closest to God. And it's not something that He's heaped upon you to do that. It's something that God uses. See, God's able to use evil. God's able to use bad things and to redeem them into good things. God didn't have in store for you bad things. Sin had that in store for you. And friends, it may not have been your sin, it might have been someone else's sin. If you just look back to original sin of Adam, he brought on death. He brought on pain. He brought on hurt. He brought on agony. And we can look to Adam and say, Adam, why did you bring all these things on? But the truth is, we've just piled it on and we've added to the out-of-control snowball of sin that's running out of control down the hill and just growing bigger by the day. So when we look inside ourselves, we have to realize, maybe I'm guilty too. Maybe I've piled on to the problem. And I think when we come to the realization that we're guilty of disobeying God, and it's going to leap out of us, God, I'm generally sorry. If I could, I would take it all back. I'd make everything right. I want to come to you, and I don't want to live that way anymore. And what the men and women in Numbers 21 were saying, God, we should have never complained against you. It's not because we're dying. We've recognized now how wrong that was to reject you. Here's how the Bible describes repentance. In Acts 3, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God. See, that's the idea that you were heading in your own direction, but now you're coming back to your senses and you're coming back towards God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Friends, repentance is turning away from what is evil, and coming back to what is good, which is God. Here's how Jesus plainly said it. But unless you repent, you will perish. 
And the people went to Moses that day because God at that time only allowed one person to mediate between God and man. But those days there was a priest. But we know now that the Bible tells us that Jesus has become our high priest. You may remember some of the miraculous events that took place when Christ was crucified on that Friday. Not only did the earth shake and the sun be blotted out when there was complete darkness, but something took place in the temple as a representation of what was going on spiritually. The eyewitness witnesses confirmed that the temple was split that the temple curtain was split in half from top to bottom, almost as if God were ripping the curtain from what was called the holies of holies, where God resided, to where the rest of man could be seen. As if to say, no longer is there going to be a division between me and you anymore. You don't have to go to a priest anymore for a confession. You don't have to go before Moses. You don't have to go before me. You can go straight to Jesus, and Jesus becomes our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16 tells us, Since we have such a great high priest, who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. See, you have confidence of going before God and saying, God, I'm sorry, and I genuinely mean it. He's not going to push you away or drive you out so that we may receive mercy. That's what you're going to find when you repent and find grace to help us in our time of need. For the people in the desert, you know, it took others dying for them to come to their senses. It took them being bit and experience a terrible pain within them to say sorry to make them want to strive differently for something in life. And I'm wondering, friends, in this room, how much pain and sorrow and agony it's going to take in your life until you finally come to your senses to realize that our sin has caused a great mess. And you can finally approach God knowing you'll find mercy, knowing you'll find grace, and you can say, Father, I am so sorry for what I've done. So the people come to God through Moses and they say, send us a deliverer. And of course, God delivers. Isn't it it interesting? You ask something for God and God delivers. And he gives you exactly what you need. Maybe not what you want. He gives you exactly what you need. And when they ask for a deliverer, we call that in scripture salvation. And so salvation came and it came in a very, very strange way. Let's finish up here in Numbers 21. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. (laughs) says the lord said to moses make a snake and put it on a pole anyone who's bitten can look at it and what and live so moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake they they lived i want to finish up with three important points the first one is this the snakes brought death but a snake brought life that's to say that the way of deliverance must be made unto like the source of death now that's kind of a theological way of saying what i can encapsulate in probably five sentences it was a snake that brought death it was a snake that brought life and friends that was always god's plan in god's plan that which saves must be made like that what brings death Romans 8.3 says it like this. The written law was made weak by our sinful nature. But God did what the written law could not do. He made His Son to be like those who have 
a sinful nature. Do you catch what's going on here? The perfect Son of God became like us who have a sinful nature, and He sent Him to be an offering for sin. In that way, He judged sin in His Son's human body so that your human body wouldn't have to be judged with sin. It could be redeemed. Let's let 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 help us out. Christ had no sin, but God made Him become sin so that in Christ we could become right with God. Do you see what's taking place here? Our deliverer is Jesus, and He was made like unto the source of our death. Sin is causing us death, and so Jesus had to become sin to take it away. Just as the snakes were biting the people and the venom was going through their veins, a snake had to be looked at to live. I don't know why God chose this way of deliverance. It's what God chose, and it's His method. And snakes brought death, snakes brought life. Jesus took on sin, and Jesus' sin that He had heaped upon Him gave us life in Christ. Here's the second thing. It's simple to be saved. You know, the only requirement for the cure in the days of Moses was just to simply look and you could live. All you had to do is look at the bronze snake. I mean, the only thing that was going to hold you back from not being saved in the desert was your own stubbornness of saying, you know what? I don't believe in that hocus pocus stuff. The only thing that was going to keep you away from not being saved from the snake bite was to say, I'm not going to look. And so you wouldn't live. But did you know there's people here today that are stumbling with the simplicity of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ? The simplicity of giving your life over to Jesus and being saved from your sins. You know, salvation from sin is so simple, but I think some of you in this room, you just refuse it. You've looked at the simplicity of it and you realize, can it really be that easy to wholeheartedly give myself over to Christ, to have faith in Him for salvation over my sins? Well, look, it was easy for those in the desert. They looked and they lived. And Jesus gives us reference to this. And he says, this is the simplicity, the simplicity of salvation. John 3, 14 through 16. Just as Moses was lifted up by a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes has eternal life. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Some will look at that scripture and say, you know what, it doesn't seem logical that salvation could be so simple. Some people who are self-sufficient in this room will say, I think that cure is too weak. Surely I've got to do something to have salvation. Others in this room will say, you know what, I think that's just a little bit unreasonable that God would be so easygoing with something so terrible like sin. All you have to do is come to Jesus and you'll be saved. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 puts it like this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. And we know that salvation is simple. We know that it's easy. Christ didn't make it so that you have to jump over hurdles to get to Him. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I'll never drive away. It's not very hard, friends, to realize that you've sinned to recognize that your sin has brought harm, to come to God and repent of your sin and find mercy and grace in Jesus. Here's the final thing. Salvation was instantaneous for those in the desert. Notice there was no other way to be saved but by looking at the snake. You couldn't say, well, I made a snake myself and we put it up on the mantle in the house and so I'm just asking my kids when they get bit to look at it. That wasn't going to save you. 
There was one way to be saved. Just as Jesus says, I am the way for salvation. And when the people looked, they lived. And when you come to Jesus, you'll be saved. But it didn't matter how many times they were bit and it didn't matter how close to death they were. In Numbers 21, verse 9, it says, anyone who looked at the snake would live. Isn't that interesting? Anyone who looked at the snake would live. You know, in John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus says this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Jesus is referring to himself. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, what? Stands condemned already. You're judging yourself by not believing. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What Jesus is saying is, the only way you can go to hell is by not believing in Jesus as your Savior. And you've pronounced that judgment upon yourself by refusing to look and to live. I want to close today by reading what God has written to you already. And maybe some of you are aware of it and you just need to be reminded of it. And maybe for some of you today, you've never heard this before. So would you do me a favor and would you close your eyes so that nothing else will distract you in the room and you can pay close attention to these scriptures that God wants to speak to you today. God wants you to know this truth. He says, there's only one God and Christ Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God. Jesus was truly human. And he gave himself to rescue all of us. God showed us this at the right time. He also says, The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, God is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And if you're asking today, what do I do now? God says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.